welcome to the All Things Uncomfortable podcast. My name is Deborah, and the reason why I decided to have this podcast is because I wanted to create space for us to discuss topics that people shy away from talking about. Today, we'll be talking about the hidden symptoms of trauma. Mark, would you like to elaborate a bit on what are the hidden symptoms of trauma? Yeah, sure thing. Hi. Yeah, thanks, Deborah. Yeah, I'm really excited about this topic. I think it's something that a lot of us experience without really being able to name the beast and sometimes naming that beast just allows us to manage it a quick run through on these hidden symptoms of trauma first and foremost you get emotional numbing disassociation hypervigilance intrusive memories and then avoidance behaviors negative self-perception and then some physical symptoms and we'll be running through those as we go through this topic it would be helpful at this time to briefly define trauma and the different types of traumas there is acute trauma which could be from a car accident to sexual violation, one of incidences that have a huge impact on your life and you get traumatic memories from that. But there's also what we call complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which can arise from an abusive childhood or caregivers who are emotionally neglectful. If you came home from school crying, they would just say, don't cry. And then you were expected to just figure out everything on your own. And you didn't have the kind of support that you needed, the kind of emotional regulation that your caregivers should have been able to provide for you. This is also traumatic and that's known as complex post-traumatic stress disorder because it happens along the course of time and it happens with somebody who is your caregiver, someone who should be able to provide support and love and acceptance, but unfortunately wasn't able to give that to you. Yeah, and it's quite interesting how regulation is something that psychologist Melanie Klein spoke about and how important it is that the mother is there pretty much from day one to regulate mm. who the child is. And it's your first and primary caregiver there that, that helps you to understand how to regulate and navigate the world. And if your parents aren't very good at that, the chances of you being good at it is slim. And that also brings us in a, a very deep connection to what we spoke about in the previous podcast, which is attachment and the different attachment styles and how this primary caregiver can create a bit of an insecure attachment, especially as you age, because we both know there's no instruction manual for children. Right. And now that we're talking about attachment styles and hidden symptoms of trauma, it just emphasizes how trauma can manifest itself, whether or not it's in an intimate relationship with a partner or with family members or with co-workers or with people that you meet at a party. So let's look more closely at how some of these hidden symptoms of trauma might have affected us on a personal level. Mark, do you have any personal anecdotes that you might want to share? So I think for many of us, there is a complexity to how we've been attached, right? And I want to preface this, I did come from a very loving family, but a family that ultimately had brokenness integrated into it, right? Like in Sugi, it was a broken jar that's come together and become its own weird, beautiful thing. Growing up, I had a alcoholic and prescription drug dependent father, and that obviously had ripple effects throughout my family. At a very young age, he went to rehab. I didn't really quite understand it, but he sobered up when he was sober for many years until my mm -hmm. older brother away in a motorbike accident. And due to that, my dad relapsed. My mother developed anxiety disorder. My brother attempted suicide. I had a lot of suicidal ideation, went into major depression. There was just a lot of, like I said, cracks now that occurred within the straw of my family. And that did relay a lot to how 
I now interact with people in terms of relationships. Because I felt at the time, I went from being the middle child to the oldest child very quickly. Then I went on to being the primary caregiver in some ways to my whole family. So in terms of family systems therapy, it's Mm -hmm. almost like myself as being above my mother and my father. So I felt like I was head of the household. And because of that, I wanted to placate and tell people how they should manage their lives at the age of 15. And then I noticed that a lot of conflict arised from that, a lot of vetting. And that, in a way, throughout my mid-teen years, led me to just put other people's needs way above my own, other people's emotions above my own. And it created a bit of an insecure void and attachment within me in terms of how I was approaching romantic relationships. And due to that, I find myself in my relationships putting my partner's needs way above my own to a point that it could be detrimental to me and my own happiness. And then I would internalize a lot of that, bottle it in until you shake that bottle and it explodes. And it wasn't necessarily like I would act aggressively or be abusive, but it would be to a point where I would get so frustrated that I no longer do the things that I used to. And when you refuse to do that expected behavior, it brings up a lot of problems within the relationship. And when those problems come up, I would just start to avoid. I would move myself away from the situation, just keep very quiet, not really own up to things because I'm like, I don't want to go into this argument because you don't really understand me, but definitely was brought upon myself. Wow. Long way to determine how and why I have the attachment style that I do. <laughs> but yeah. 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 Sounds like you've really been through a lot, Mark, when you talked about losing your brother and becoming parentified at such a young age and coping with parents who are also falling apart at the seams, right, from the fallout. That's a heavy burden to carry. It's amazing that you've come to this point on your healing journey to be able to talk about it so openly. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that. But I was also laughing at that point where you were talking about how you bottle it up. So I subscribe to the Mayor's Bricks. You- Theory and I'm an INFJ and basically they call it the INFJ door slam where it gets to a point where you're just like, okay, bye. And then the person becomes completely irrelevant to you and there's nothing they say or do that will ever change your mind about them. And there's a part of me that wonders if that's my personality or it's a part of my attachment style. I do feel that there's room to communicate earlier so that it doesn't build up to a point where there's no turning back. Or if you do communicate your boundaries earlier on, then people who are not meant to be in your life will naturally show themselves the door. Or people who are meant to be in your life will know better how to love you and respect you for who you are and where you're at. Yeah. That in situations like that, there's elements of truth to what you're saying, but it could be a combination of all of it. There will be times where if someone has caused my bottle to be too full that I can't manage it, I can easily close them out. And that becomes quite a conscious decision in some ways to do that. And it's probably not always the best thing to be doing but we're all human and navigating this world is difficult but then there can also be the one side of it where you were saying that the right people will know how to love you and not necessarily cause that bottle to become too full or too stressed and there's an element of truth to that but it comes down to then how we regulate our own emotions as well because it becomes very dismissive to just be like they're not the right person if you lean into that too much because there's an element of self-care that comes out and that's very important but your self-care should 
should not always be at the detriment to other relationships. I'm saying that's what you're doing, but I can see how people can fall into that. I'm just taking care of myself and you don't understand me and therefore I'm going to push you away. And if you start using it as an excuse rather than to face what you need to face, then yeah, I can see that becoming a problem, especially if you are now getting involved in, in a real romantic relationship. And part of a romantic relationship is to be super uncomfortable, is to be aware that you're going into relationships with trauma, to be aware that you're going into relationships, as we spoke about in the first podcast, with different attachment styles and different histories. Two things come to mind, even as you were talking about unpacking the hidden symptoms of trauma, especially in intimate relationships. And one of them is people pleasing. Mm -hmm. As children, when we were growing up in homes where there were certain standards, where our parents brought us up to their best of ability. It would punish us, it would reward us based on certain types of behavior. We learn to adapt to that. Some of us might have taken the route of becoming more compliant and learning how to people please. And those symptoms carry over into adulthood because those parts of ourselves are actually hidden from genuine, authentic connection. So an intimate relationship, which actually requires that there's emotional intimacy, requires that we are fully seen and fully known. Over time, of course, there's no rush to it. But if we are continually in a state of people pleasing, that is a hidden trauma symptom because when you're engaging in that, your real self is not actually being known. And that actually contributes to breakdown in relationship over time. Yes. And people pleasing, you're not allowing yourself to regulate yourself, to be honest. You can almost hide it and use it as a mask. So people pleasing becomes a bit of a band-aid. But just taking a few steps back. So people pleasing, I'm definitely one of those because as a middle child, there's such a thing as middle child syndrome where you wanted to keep the peace between the youngest brother the older brother try to be that bridging gap and in wanting to keep the peace especially as three boys we did get up to some mischievous stuff and I got a lot of reward from my parents when I did something good okay now this is where I get my validation from being the good boy I'm not making too much noise from being placid in some ways but it becomes a cycle because I was being taught that for you to feel love you need to be good and not cause a disturbance not upset the apple cart so to speak but in doing that, I learned that, well, maybe if I people please within my adult relationships, not just romantically, but friendships as well, that's where I'm going to feel appreciation. So even when hanging out with my friends, I'd always let them do what they wanted to do. In some cases, I realized that I didn't really want to hang around with my friends. And it was definitely caused by myself. Like, I was like, I don't want to hang around with people because we always do what they want to do. But you didn't tell them what you wanted to do. Yeah, but I thought that they would appreciate that the same way that my parents showed me like, oh, well done, you did so good. Not making any noise, and then you're so much <laughs> age, and, and I thought, and then there's that disconnect. Like my friends don't celebrate me the same way that my parents did. What the hell's going on here? Then I felt like maybe I'm not doing enough of that. And yeah, it was only really in my early twenties when I had to take that independence, where I realized, like, hey, you've got a voice. You've got to use it. And that ended up my relationships. And it was due to a little bit of therapy as well. Uh, in some sense, that continuously being rewarded for being good can create a bit of a trauma response in the sense that now I'm underappreciated. Now I'm all of a sudden developing a bit of anxiety when it comes to being groups of people. Because how am I going to meet everybody's needs in that whole group? Another hidden symptom of trauma, which I think many people might be able to relate to, is emotional numbing. Where individuals may experience numbing of emotions, making it difficult 
possible for them to feel love, joy, or even enthusiasm. They may struggle to connect with their own emotions or the emotions of others. I've been through this when I was in an abusive marriage. I just had to cope on so many different levels with just not feeling seen, hurt, felt, not feeling supported, acknowledged, and just constantly feeling like even though I was married, I was still alone. And I think it got to a point where I would spend hours watching TV just to get by in a day. There was a period of time when I was also out of a job and basically I watched eight seasons worth of Homeland. I watched eight seasons in one month. When I was a kid, my parents, God bless them, they left me on my own for extended periods of time and my babysitter was the TV. I love beauty, so you know, there's that element to it when you see really good art and you see really good script writing and you see the delivery and it just makes something that might have been numb in me come alive and just spark something in me so in as much as I do get emotionally numb from time to time and watching TV somehow it does help me to feel like a human being. I think in many ways your emotions are coming to the point where you can actually process it. Neurochemically you can process it because when you go through trauma cortisol level rises um, and that does cause a sense of mm-hmm. like feeling hyper vigilant but I'm not feeling anything else besides that. But it also sounds like after this it's like escapism right like i want mm-hmm. to know my emotion I'd rather get lost in a different world and look at other people manage their artificial emotions and i say artificial because you can almost escape into their world instead of having to deal with whatever it is you're feeling if at that point you may not have been feeling anything i had a lot of numb emotions when at the death of my brother and my father's drinking i was very mm-hmm. apathetic to right. his experience. whatever you're going through doesn't matter to me which is harsh, but it's where I was at. Maybe in some weird way, that was a way of surviving, right? Our brains are yet to keep us alive. So I don't have the capacity to worry about what he's going through, even though what he was going through was very real and destructive for himself and the amount of hurt. I can't imagine what it's like for a father to lose the oldest son, right? Now I look back at it and yeah, he dealt with it the way that he best knew how, and it was toxic, destructive to himself, to our family. But no one teaches you how to get through this. No one tells you how to get through trauma. You were in a state of freeze. So then all those symptoms of depression, numbness, dissociation, shame, shutdown, hopelessness, helplessness, mm-hmm. all of that comes in, which makes it really hard for you to be there for them in the way that they were used to being there for them. And a lot of those things that you mentioning, they just came into my head is that's how we start to identify that we have a bit of unresolved trauma and so comorbidity with a lot of different elements. Like you might actually just be experiencing depression. Depression could be a result of trauma or it could just be depression related life circumstances right now. It could be due to situational factors or just a lack of rest or due to a buildup, like you said, of cortisol in your body, which brings me to avoidance behaviors, which is also another hidden symptom of trauma because escaping into TV or anime or fiction or art, all of these could be ways of stress relief, but it also could be in some ways not dealing with the problem, right? You might avoid certain places, people, activities, or even conversations that remind you of the traumatic event. So this is one thing that I think about a lot as I consider how to have another intimate relationship 
How do you have those conversations with a potential person that you like, right? Yeah. How is it going to happen? And how will you even get to the point of having that conversation with that person to talk about the feelings that you might have? Yeah, I'm going to ask you, Deborah, if, and I'm, I'm asking you to be vulnerable, right? Maybe to be a little bit uncomfortable as well, because I know that you've gone through an abusive relationship and I can't imagine how traumatic that must have been. And I can imagine there's a fear of trust somebody again and that's indirectly what I'm hearing in your approach to this is how do I trust again where you the person that you should have trusted the most deeply just betrayed that trust and hurt you in more ways than I think most people can actually understand and now you're asking I need to have that conversation with the next person having come from a marriage of eight years which it was a relationship that I had also been pressured to rush into. And I look back and realize that there wasn't that process where he was able to earn my trust. I gave my trust away so easily. It's almost as if I had betrayed myself. I hadn't valued myself enough to be like, okay, it's one thing to say that you love me. It's another thing to show me that you love me. So if you can demonstrate to me over time that you're somebody that I can really trust and trust takes time to build, then show me. But if you don't do that, and if it's just this quick exchange of words and what do words ultimately come for and all the symptoms of trauma bonding were there from the beginning, those are the things that I would want to look out for so that I can avoid it in subsequent relationships because trauma bonding does not form a good foundation for a long-term relationship. It forms the foundation of abusive relationships, not for loving, nurturing, and mutually beneficial long-term relationships. That's my view of relationship now. And I think that trust takes time to build. And you need to look at how a person shows up in a relationship over a period of time before you trust that person. And I'm sure that you're no stranger to that, Mark. How would you navigate that? And what are your thoughts on having those conversations with somebody that you might be interested in? Yeah, so relationships in themselves, right? Like you're opening yourself up and the risk of a relationship is the opening of the possibility of hurt. And that hurt can look very different in different ways, right? It can be the hurt of an abusive relationship, of infidelity. It can be physical abuse, emotional abuse. Just listening to what you were saying, there is an element of, okay, so when is the point of trust? Because what I was hearing from your side is that in order to open up, you need to feel certain and secure that person has your best interests at heart, and then will you open up? And I can understand why people use that as a defense mechanism, because we do need to guard our hearts, especially if we've been hurt. We definitely don't want to go through that again. We are defending what is important to us. And those barriers are okay. So for me, instead of having one big wall, I have little barricades up. Barricades are at different points in the relationship and they each represent a different thing. And then to test that intimacy of how vulnerable can I be with you, I might start with something minor in my life that happened and I give them the opportunity to show that I can trust them with that information. The incremental means of testing whether or not somebody can be trusted. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds very clinical, but it's something that we do all the time, even with friendships. We're like, okay, let's see, where do we align in our thoughts and our views? And that all comes down to to a relationship as well like where do we learn can i share the fact that i for instance might say that a political person that i admire has done wrong here like where does the gray areas lie so it is 
incremental. And I think that initial point of a relationship can be traumatic in itself, right? It's going to create hypervigilance. And I see it anecdotally a lot on women's side, right? They get hypervigilant. They're like, he hasn't texted me for two hours where he normally does. I need to be very aware of myself here. I need to protect myself. Maybe I need to pull away. Meanwhile, that guy could have been busy at work. Something could have come up. And it's probably not what you're thinking. But there's this hypervigilance that's overprotective. So that becomes part of that like hidden trauma because dating has become a lot more complicated. But if I look at my grandparents, they don't have cell phones or social media or any form of WhatsApp or instant messaging that we have now. So they would go to work and not speak to each other for eight days and come back and catch up and there'll be a day to talk about stuff. And their level of connection is so much more. So I do not necessarily agree that you have to be in comms with all each other, but you have to just lay down expectations. When the other person doesn't fulfill the expectations for whatever reason... Yes. That's when you actually have to talk it out. And that's the part that's hard. Yeah, it is hard. And you you have have to to tell them, I expected this from you and you didn't do this. And that doesn't sound fun. No, it's not fun. But to have anything really, if you look at life, right, your ultimate goal is not necessarily happiness in itself. You can't always be 100% happy. But to get through to happiness, you might have to go through some hardships. And it's the same thing with happiness in relationships. You have to go through these birthing pains of determining what is the child of your relationship going to look like how are you going to raise your relationship how are you going to get it to walk how are you going to get it to run a relationship matures with you i remember having a conversation with one of my pastors about relationships and he's like i constantly fall in love with my wife yeah it's not that you always have those butterflies and all the happy feelings and because that can only really last for about three to six months as it is right that endorphin rush your body mm-hmm. can't keep it and then you're going to get to a point like, oh, I'm not feeling that anymore. Like, I'm just not feeling it. And and that's generally where you hear, especially in teenage relationships, about six months is roughly how long it lasts because they're chasing that dopamine and everything we spoke about in the first podcast. Yeah, it's not sustainable. And then when that doesn't happen, they protect themselves and they go into maybe an acute stress or trauma response for it because they've experienced it with other relationships. What does that look like, that acute stress or trauma response? What are the symptoms that show up? It's going to be very similar to what we spoke about before. I think one of the first behaviors that comes out is a level of avoidance in terms of, I'm just going to avoid them for a bit until I understand what it is I'm feeling. Just pull away a bit and maybe not be so eager gunning. And in doing so, you're avoiding the conversations because actually it might just be something that you need to talk about. Mm -hmm. Or it could be if you have gone through a terrible relationship before, you are going to associate traits of that relationship onto the other partner. Some transference going on and triggers. 100%, yeah. Or you could start questioning yourself. Am I doing the right things? I'm not that confident. Maybe that's what he's seeing now. Maybe he's seeing underneath the veil, so to speak. So if you're constantly overthinking, it affects your sleep, affects your thought patterns it affects your sense of self if you constantly feel down or depressed you share this with some people who are not sensitive or who might not even be the right people to share it with and then they reflect back to you what you share with them with no empathy and that can really damage your self-esteem and your sense of self-worth and you might even develop negative beliefs about yourself such as being unworthy helpless or damaged right so if you have this worldview that you are just completely not wired for relationship or even intimate relationship that could have a negative self-fulfilling prophecy because when you look at other people you project that onto
to your relationships with other people. And other people feel that and they respond in kind. So I think a big part of healing from trauma is actually shifting your perception of yourself and learning how to treat yourself with kindness and unconditional love. And that is hard. That's not easy. But if I had to say to the average person, go spend three hours completely and take your cell phone with. Firstly, you're going to feel like I need that dopamine kick because we're so hyper stimulated today. And just scroll Instagram and so we're just getting dopamine kicks. I know it's something that you're quite a strong advocate to and so am I, but as part of that somatic experience, just, mm-hmm. I need to be alone with my physical presence and to sometimes ruminate when I need to ruminate on the traumatic memories and see how that makes my body feel, see if I'm starting to feel queasy. Do I get headaches? Do I need to go through those things? That's a tough journey. It's not easy. And that's why you need to go through therapists to understand that process. You have to be able to sit with yourself if you are going through CPTSD or PTSD or you've had just recently gone through a traumatic experience and you find yourself like, I'm getting headaches, I'm feeling sick, I can't function around people, I'm running, like almost literally running away from situations that remind me of my trauma in my life and now it's become really chronic. We talked about avoidance behaviors and now it seems like we're talking about dissociation because it's a way for us to cope when we are undergoing extreme stress or overwhelming experiences. So it can lead to feelings of disconnection from yourself or observing life as if it's happening to somebody else. And I was in that space when I came out of that abusive relationship. I was going through PTSD symptoms from the assault that I'd been through. And at one point in my life, I even felt like everything's just a video game. What do you want to do today? Let's go do that. There wasn't that sense of presence in my life that I was rooted or grounded. And when I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, which talks about the mind-body connection and how many traumas survivors are able to be very high functioning until a trigger hits them and then they start to unravel. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the unprocessed trauma lies. And how do you process your trauma? I think one of the biggest things that I took away from that book as a coping mechanism was to actually feel the pain in your body, like especially CPTSD trauma survivors. They went through life just dissociating because the kind of hurt or abuse that come at them was unremitting. And there was inescapable shock and terror. So they had to cut off their mind from their body in order to survive, in order to cope and dissociate on some level. And basically ignore all the sensations their bodies were giving to them. Find ways to live in their heads so that they could ignore what their bodies were telling them. The truth, the wisdom that the body was trying to impart. Because there was no other way to continue living. But once you're in a place where you're safe and those feelings will start to surface... And it can be overwhelming at times to, for example, experience heartbreak. Heartbreak is the sensation in your heart physically. It feels like there's something breaking in there. And I do remember the first time I experienced that after coming out of that abusive relationship, I called up a friend and I was like, pretty sure I feel like I'm dying. I I feel like I'm dying. And she's like, what's going on? And she knew the whole backstory. She knew that I had separated due to a physical assault and yada, yada, yada. And and I said, it's just in my heart. It's, it it just, it feels like there's something, it, it just feels like something's breaking right there. And I feel like I'm drowning. And she was like, darling, it's called heartbreak. And then when she explained it, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) It's heartbreak. That's what it is. Yeah. And, and people, people do die of a broken heart. It happens. Um, You can get a heart attack from heartbreak and it's a real physiological response. Our mind and bodies are definitely connected. And I think that's why 
understanding the somatic experience is one of the first points in, in dealing with, when I say severe cases of trauma, a somatic response is definitely there and, and start to be aware of that. And I think that's why you need to be aware of your physical symptoms. If nothing else is explaining the fact that you have stomach problems other than psychological symptoms or psychosomatic symptoms, then you've got to really have a look at that. Mm -hmm. My stomach is telling me I am feeling uneasy. Why is it that I'm feeling uneasy? Right? Be aware of that. What is my headaches telling me? Is it because I'm stressed? I have tension in my life. Back pain can be related to psychosomatic principles, right? You just feel like you're carrying the whole burden of the world. People who are overburdened can obviously sometimes feel a back pain. Sleep disturbances is like one of the first things that they ask about, especially in diagnostic criteria. It's like, how is your sleep? We are aware that there's physical symptoms as a psychotherapist that relate to an array of psychiatric disorders. So you've got to start there. And I can attest to that because when I was married for the entire eight years, I suffered from irritable bowel syndrome and, mm. and I was also suffering from depression and insomnia. But within four months of leaving that relationship, even though the divorce itself was even more traumatic as things unfolded, but within four months of leaving that relationship, I was cured of insomnia. My IBS was just gone. I got off antidepressants. So psychosomatic symptoms, that's something to pay attention to. Once a source of unremitting stress is removed from your life, then your body starts to heal. And yeah. I think that it makes sense in any new situation that you're in, pay attention to what your body is telling you, because that is an important instrument. Even in psychotherapy, they always talk about using your body as a tool. When you're sitting down with the patient you're counseling, how do you feel? What is your body telling you? What are they saying to you? And what is your body feeling? Because 90% of what we communicate isn't really through the words, but through body language. So therein lies the importance of paying attention to how you feel within your body and the importance of interoception, which is being able to discern what your body is telling you. And that does take a lot of work. It has a huge emotional impact. Sometimes you think, oh, if I go to see this counselor, if I do ABCDFG, I'll be all done and I can move on. For example, I went for EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and it was an hour and a half each time. But honestly, yeah. after each hour and a half, I would have to block out the rest of my day just because of the emotional intensity that was involved yeah. in processing through those difficult memories and working through them and folding them away so that I would have more capacity. And that in and of itself during the session is happening. But later on too, it's also happening. So your body takes some time to catch up with your mind. And mm -hmm. it's important that you give yourself the bandwidth for that to happen. 100%. It's not easy to actually go through those because when you're starting to bring these things up, you say it takes time out of your day and you just need to be gentle with yourself in that process, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah, so I've been on a pretty long healing journey and being gentle with myself has been instrumental in getting to this point where I am running my own trauma consulting company, having this podcast with you, Mark. And I'm yeah. also offering two signature courses under my company, Creature which stands for creatures in Latin, which acknowledges the fact that as much as we're humans and we have rational ways of behavior, we're also creatures. We have creatureliness in us. We have needs and we want to be loved. Like your dog will run up to you and there's a desire to connect and be loved and be vulnerable. So that's the title of my company, Creature. And so the two courses that my company offers is the Trauma-Informed Mindfulness course, it's Nurturing, Healing, and Resilience. It's a two-hour course where we do body work, where we talk about trauma and its impact, where we help you to identify within yourself parts of yourself that you might need to bring healing to or 
certain traumatic experiences that you might need to process. And within this period of time, you're going to be able to do that to experience trauma-informed mindfulness approaches. And the other one is the Foundations of Trauma Cause, which is targeted for stakeholders and service providers across different institutions, from corporate to schools, to law enforcement, and to hospitals, to key stakeholders and service providers with a solid understanding of trauma and its impact. And this course will equip participants with essential knowledge, tools, and strategies to create trauma-informed environments, foster resilience, and promote healing within their own respective organizations. And to all our listeners, we encourage you to consider enrolling in these courses to deepen your understanding of trauma, gain the practical toolbox for how to process your own trauma and to help other people so that you can create trauma-informed environments. And in order to sign up for these courses, you just have to access my website and click in on courses provided and you will see those courses right there. And Mark, do you think you could just recap the main points of today's podcast discussion for us? Yeah, sure. No problem. I don't know who you are, your situation, your experiences. They are yours. And remember that they are yours. And they're not everybody's going to experience things exactly the same way. But that being said, there is definitely treatments that work for what you're going through, whether it's acute stress or you're going through CPTSD. There are therapies, there are people. And exactly what Deborah was saying is that there's courses that you can even take to help yourself through that. So make sure that you go out and seek the help that you need, right? Also realize that you've got to be very aware of what you're feeling. Like I said from the beginning of the podcast, name the beasts. Are you emotionally numbing yourself? Are you disassociating? Do you find yourself being hypervigilant in relationships and the way that you walk around even? Sometimes that just comes down to being hyperperceptive because you might have experienced a trauma of assault. Where's your memories go to when you sit with yourself? Where does your head run to? Are you running away from your own mind? What is your view of yourself in this situation as well? Do you blame yourself? What are you laying blame on yourself? And that becomes a very difficult thing to be aware of. Mm -hmm. What are your physicals lastly? Is your trauma manifesting and and you overly complaining about everything? Or do you find Mm -hmm. chronic pain? That's just Mm -hmm. not, that there's no real other medical reason um, for you experiencing these things. And Mm. if you are feeling these things, definitely go check them out. Your health is important. My last thought is be gentle with yourself. We all experience things. You're not alone. Get the help that you need. Yeah, definitely. I want to emphasize that last point, to be gentle and kind to yourself. When I made the decision to be kind to myself, I think that was the turning point in my healing journey. I think that really helps me and I continue to practice that, to be kind to myself, because it's only in being kind to myself that I can actually find it within myself to be kind to other people too. And that is actually a good way to heal because that also influences your relationships with people, the way you see the world, the way you create opportunities for yourself, the way you feel even when you make inevitable mistakes that you will make this part of life. So being kind to yourself, being gentle with yourself, I think those are the two key ingredients. And how do you get to that point? Drop me a note or sign up for the courses or reach out to other healthcare professionals as you see fit. But the main point is to reach out and get the help that you need because that's also another essential part of the healing process is deciding that you deserve better and that you will help yourself. Imagine like you're helping a friend right imagine you're being that friend to yourself you're saying what does this person need this person might need to see a therapist this person might need to see a coach so you go ahead and help that person you book that session with the coach or therapist to start your healing journey mark do you have any other thoughts to add on that no thank you for completed it well thanks for a great discussion Deborah. all things uncomfortable right i sometimes yeah. feel a little bit uncomfortable doing these podcasts too to be fair <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not too uncomfortable